of James, and as I mentioned, we will be in James chapter 2 this evening as we continue on with our sermon series. If you have a pew Bible, you can find our section on page 1012, and our scripture for this uh, evening will be James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And these are the words of the one and only God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you are the God who has declared that your name will be sanctified amongst your people, and that you have borne in us a true faith, a living faith that shows itself by the works that you have prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We pray now you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word and unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Well, one of my uh, very best friends growing up in Texas had quite the affection for the state of Missouri. And why someone would love the state of Missouri over the great nation of Texas, your guess is as good as mine. But in his defense, he attended university there, formed some meaningful friendships there, uh, loved the Mizzou football team, the Fighting Tigers. Uh, But above all, For some reason, he loved the state's motto, which if you don't know, is the show me state. You can drive around Missouri today and the license plates proudly boast, Missouri, the show me state. And as to its origin, the state legend holds that in 1899, a Missouri congressman stood up and gave this impassioned argument saying, and I quote, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, and cockaburs, 
and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. And so the legend has it that the state motto of show me was then born. And in much the same way, you could think of this passage in James as the show me passage. Namely, show me your faith. As if James is saying, frothy eloquence, a mere profession of faith does not convince me. It does not satisfy me, for I am a Christian. Don't tell me. Show me of your faith. And so we'll walk through the text in two simple portions, looking at a dead faith in the first section, secondly, looking at a lively faith, with the main point simply being faith made visible by our works. The simple truth that the seed of faith always flowers in a bouquet of works. So firstly, a dead faith, starting in verse 14, and absolutely vital to understanding this passage is to observe that James is addressing a particular kind of faith. The question at hand is not, does faith save someone? That is not the question on the table. If you look carefully at the question posed at the end of verse 14, and that oh-so-helpful pronoun, that, when James asks, can that faith save? As in, can that kind of faith or that type of faith save someone? And so we do well to ask, well, what kind of faith exactly does James have in mind? And you see, verse 14 specifies the kind of so-called faith that is without works. And so James is addressing this hypothetical person, if you will, who says, oh, I've, I've got plenty of faith. I made a commitment to Christ years ago, decades ago. I just don't have any works. And so James raises the question, well, what good is that? Is that a real faith? Is that a genuine faith? Does that faith have any value? And then James makes my job easy in that he provides the preacher with this ready-made illustration to make his argument in verse 15. Here's the analogy. A brother or sister is poorly clothed. They're lacking in food. They're destitute. Verse 16, this person comes up and responds with these empty encouragements, this hollow hope, and says, well, go in peace and be warm and filled without actually providing anything of substance or sustenance. And James says, what good was that? What benefit was all that talk? Of course, the obvious implication is that was of no good, no use, no benefit, whatever. And then James closes out the analogy in verse 17 with a punchiness saying, do not delude yourselves, do not flatter yourselves with your mere profession of faith because in the same way, that those empty encouragements are of no value to the poor destitute person. In the same way, faith apart from works is of no benefit. In fact, it is even dead. And so we're beginning to learn something of the nature of faith. James has answered that question, can that kind of faith save? Namely, faith without works, and he has all but bluntly, characteristically said no. It cannot. And this is why we have a pithy way of putting this doctrine in Reformed theology, that we are saved by faith alone, 
but that saving faith is never alone. Saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone, which is to say that saving faith is always accompanied with this parade of good works. And before we move on to the next section, though, I do, I do want to highlight that as the more I've studied this, I don't think this is simply an, an ivory tower, abstract doctrine for James. I think he was remarkably deliberate in choosing that particular scenario of this poor, destitute person who receives little more than empty wishes. Because what have we seen thus far in James's letter? That he warns the rich not to be haughty. That he warns against partiality that favors the rich over the poor. That this hypothetical is probably not so hypothetical. There well may be members in his congregation whose faith is on life support, who hear the word but don't actually do the word and would say little more than go, go, be warm and be filled to those who are in need. Indeed, I would say let us reflect likewise. How often it is that we might see a brother or sister in need and we give our own version of this and we flippantly say, well, I'll be praying for you. Or here's a Bible verse for you out of the dispensing machine of my heart. Now, please don't mishear me when that is sincere. Yes and amen. That is so often godly encouragement, and we need more of it. Paul so often tells people, I am praying for you. Be encouraged by that. But if I could channel John's epistle, I think James's point would be, if anyone sees his brother in need and closes his heart, how does the love of God reside in that person? Brothers and sisters, let us not simply love in, in word and in talk, but in deed and truth. And I think James would only add, why? Because that is the nature of true faith. That is what saving faith does. James 2 is not a passage about works, so much as it is a passage about the faith that works. And so on that note, having looked at dead faith, let us now conversely look at a lively faith in verses 18 and following. And you see in verse 18 that our motto appears once again as the verb to show is repeated twice. Again, so crucial to understanding this section of Scripture, James is discussing the matter of how does faith show itself. Like a spiritual detective, James is asking, what are the evidences, what are the clues of genuine faith? Because maybe you could imagine, or in reality, you've come across a kind of hyper-spiritual Gnostic person who might say something like, well, that's foolish, James. I mean, faith is invisible. Faith is unseen. Faith is a matter of the heart. You can't see faith. And James is going to say, you foolish person, of course you can. Sure you can. A tree is known by its fruit. And faith expresses itself in a parade of good works. In verse 18, he says as much, saying, I will show you my faith, and how? By way of my works. My visible works will reveal the reality of my invisible faith. And then coming in from the side, this presumptuous professor of faith will then counters and says, well, but I believe all the right things. I've got all the right doctrine. I check all the right boxes. In verse 19, James replies, Friend, at best, 
that puts you in the company of demons. For even the demons can recite the Shema and say that God is one. Even the demons could pass a presbytery exam with orthodox answers, and at least they know enough to shudder and tremble in fear when they say God is one. And so we learn something further on the anatomy of true faith, that you can know all the facts and not have faith, that you can have all the right data and not have devotion. Of course, this in no way disparages knowledge. The Reformers were very clear that knowing the right things, knowing the right contents of the faith, knowing that God is one, knowing that Christ died on the cross, knowing that he rose again is indispensable to real faith. Designated with that Latin term, notitia. We must know these things. But James's point is that believing that is not the same thing as believing in. What gives faith its teeth is a trust that latches on to Jesus Christ, arresting and relying upon him. And so James goes on to deepen his argument, saying that lively faith is, is marked by two things. Firstly, as you see in verse 22, faith is active. Genuine faith is an active faith. The Greek word even better, perhaps intimating that faith is, is synergistic or cooperative. Maybe we could imagine something like branches trying to grow grapes, trying to grow fruit while detached from the vine. We would all say that is impossible. That would never happen. Those branches must abide in the vine, synergize with the vine if they are going to be productive. And James says faith is like that. Faith bears fruit in that way. So faith is not sedentary. It is active. Secondly, lively faith is completed by our works. Verse 22, James writes that faith was completed or fulfilled by Abraham's works, namely in view, the sacrifice of Isaac. In other words, if, if Abraham would have said, yes, I, I believe God, but I don't think I'll offer up Isaac. It just, it's too much of a stretch. It doesn't make sense. It makes no logical uh, rationale behind it. The response would be, your faith is incomplete. God is summoning you to a deeper, fuller faith. And of course, Abraham did. And so James cites Genesis in verse 23, that Abraham did believe God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A verse, by the way, that comes long before the actual offering up of Isaac. But that is exactly the point. The faith of Abraham was no mere profession. It was proven to be true. It passed through a crucible of circumstances, and it came out the other side as a tested, genuine faith. And so you might remember the angel at the end of that sacrifice tells Abraham, now I know that you fear the Lord. And did Abraham have faith prior to that? Yes, of course he did. But it was an unproven faith. And so we can see his faith was deepened. It matured. It grew. It was more and more complete. And so in verse 24, James concludes that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, as Jordan alluded to, and perhaps if you are Familiar with your New Testament, this verse might make you a little squirmy. 
maybe perhaps a little bit nervous because it might seem like there's this tension between James on one hand and the Apostle Paul on the other hand. Perhaps even that Scripture is contradicting itself because Paul says very clearly in Romans 3 that we are justified by faith and not by works of the law. And yet James here says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. But this tension is rather easily resolved when we realize that the two men are asking two different questions. Recall that Paul is dealing with the matter of, can my works make me right? Perhaps better said, righteous before God. Can my works merit a kind of righteousness and right standing before God? And Paul is, of course, very clear, absolutely not. In no way are my works an instrument of meriting my righteousness. Only by faith alone, in Christ alone, am I justified. James, however, is asking a much different, though equally important, question. Remember, he is the show-me man. And so he is dealing with what does justifying faith look like? What does real faith look like in motion? And of course, we know by now his answer is, in this activity of works. And further, I do want you to see that not only do James and Paul not disagree, but the Scripture presents a united front in this matter. That is, Paul says in Ephesians that we are saved by grace alone apart from works. And then immediately after that says what? That we are to walk in good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And so while we're not saved by works, we most certainly are saved unto good works. And no doubt Paul and James are shaking hands and high-fiving each other on this doctrine. So back to James with one final comment and maybe even one final objection we could imagine from his congregation is something like, Oh, James, you're, you're such an elitist. I mean, really, you pick Abraham as your example. Abraham, the Jew, by way of God's immediate election, the father of faith, the kind of faith that would sacrifice one's own son. What about ordinary people? What about everyday faith? Perhaps you too may be intimidated if the bar of faith is set as high as Abraham. So James invokes this quite unlikely follow-up to Abraham with that of Rahab. Rahab, the Gentile. Rahab, the Canaanite. Assumed to be of low moral character. Low status. And yet James holds her up right next to Abraham. As you see in verse 25. In the same way. In the same way as Abraham, Rahab, the prostitute, showed forth a justifying faith when she let out the spies by another way. It's as if James has now cut off every excuse and given every encouragement that all of us, from the greatest to the least, are summoned to have an active, lively faith. Indeed, faith can be on a spectrum. On one end, it can be quite strong and needs meat. On the other end, it can be quite weak and can barely take milk. But we know the truth. 
that even the faintest faith latches on to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are to do good works by the power of the Spirit. And so as we begin to close, let us lay up in our hearts but three things about the nature of faith and works. Firstly, most obviously, true faith is a working faith. True faith works. A statement that, unfortunately, no doubt has fallen on deaf ears in recent times. But James has been so clear. Faith without works is dead. Works are the necessary, vital outpour of faith. There simply is no such thing as a non-working faith. As our confession says, that good works are the fruits and the evidences of a true and lively faith. As you see in verse 26, once again, James helps me out with another great analogy. When he says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, faith apart from works is dead. You don't need to be a medical doctor to stumble across a body with no breath, no animation to say, this is a corpse. And James says it's that simple. You stumble across a so-called faith with no animation, no breath, no life, no works. That faith is a corpse because true faith is a productive faith. Secondly, and in light of that truth, we know we are to examine our faith in light of our works. It begs the question, is your faith lively or is it a lie? And one way, certainly not the only, but one way to cross-examine is to look at the obedience of your faith, namely your works. And I imagine that is, in a room this size, a bit of a spectrum for everyone in here. That some of you can quite easily look at your life and you find good works abounding and, and overflowing. And indeed, this is one of the benefit, benefits of good works, that by them, you strengthen your assurance. You can hear it in James's confidence when he says, I can, I will, I will show you my faith, and I will show it to you by way of my works. He has this bold confidence that we should aspire to. I suspect, though, some of you would say, yes, I, I see my works if I squint. I desire a more fruitful life, a more abundant life. I believe, but help my unbelief. And I imagine, too, there may even be some of you who have grave doubts, and you say, I, I, I made a decision for Christ years ago, but when I take an honest look, I see little to no works, and the desire is very faint, maybe even not there, and I hear the word, I'm just not much of a doer of the word. Should I be concerned? And James's clear answer is a resounding yes. You should be gravely concerned eternally concerned and ultimately with the kind of concern that would lift your gaze up to the Lord Jesus Christ. The James would say, look to Christ, look to Christ, and look again to Christ. Don't confuse James for some kind of legalist who would say, just, well, run out and do a bunch of works and you'll somehow generate your stillborn faith. No, he would say, look to Christ for this is what works are. They are done in faith, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And on that note, lastly, thirdly, let us be a people zealous for good works. As Scripture said, God has redeemed us from lawlessness to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. I love that word zeal. Kids, do you know what the word zeal means? You could use it tonight. Mom and Dad, I'm so zealous for Christmas. What does it mean? Admittedly, I have a somewhat odd analogy, but I have to confess, when I read that word zeal, kids, what pops into my mind immediately is my dog, my golden retriever whose name is Cotton. Cotton is the consummate man's best friend. And the reason he pops into my mind is because when I, when I come home, just at the mere thought, or mere thought, the mere sight of me, Cotton sees me, and he gets that tail wagging, and he gets his big red tongue sagging out of his mouth, and he's just drooling, salivating for a chance to please me. And I can just tell with all that is in his little canine heart, he just thinks, oh, just for a chance to go and retrieve that stick that my master threw and bring that stick back to my master and hear my master say, good boy, good boy. Is that not what life is for? Cotton is is zeal embodied. And Christian, you should ask the question, is that you? Is that you? And perhaps you say, oh, yes, but as a man, woman, child, I am so much more dignified than a mere dog. Indeed, but is not God infinitely so much greater than a mere master? Is there anything greater than to hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant? And maybe you say, yes, but how could I be sure that my, my works, my filthy rags, so imperfect, would be pleasing in God's eyes? Indeed, you know the answer, because we turn our eyes off of our good works and onto the good work, the one who did the work that his Father gave him to do, the one who did the once-for-all work of salvation, the accomplished work of atonement, the pleasing aroma of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How good of a craftsman is our God? Would God do anything less than transform a people to be more and more like his son? A people zealous for good works. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do praise you that you are the God who has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them by faith and by the power of your Spirit. We pray you would teach us to be an expectant people, walking in the footpath of those very works that lay before us, that we might walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling under which we have been called. And we do pray these things in the great and strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And amen. Well, as we continue in worship, let's stand as we respond and sing hymn 672.